0: All right, Uh, we're in the book of Acts uh, again tonight. Uh, We've been in Acts uh, since we've been in this building. And uh, the reason uh, that we chose Acts to be the book that we kind of go through, that's what we do uh, in our church is we just preach kind of verse by verse through books, is that uh, this is really the story, the retelling, the account of the early church, how uh, the church really got started after uh, Jesus died, he was risen, and uh, he ascended back into heaven. What happened then? Uh, Well, that's what happens, because we think it kind of lays down some patterns uh, for us today. Uh, I think it's really appropriate, because we are in this new space. In many ways, this is like relaunching the church. Uh, That's what this has felt like the last couple months. Uh, We are on a trajectory, uh, come the end of March, where we will no longer be Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church-Dash-Downtown, but we will be blankety-blank-blank-blank church. Um, We will be our own church, uh, where uh, we will... In some ways, just kind of come, come alongside what was already true, and that's that we had that God's given us a life of our own. Uh, now, this isn't now for those of you who have questions like, this isn't a divide, everything is great with the mothership. Um, uh, where this isn't, uh, they're not kicking us out of the house, we're not asking them to kick us out of the house. Uh, this is just a very natural thing that's happened, and both we're all really, really excited about it. In fact, uh, we hope that we're able to plant more and more churches throughout Central Kentucky over the next couple decades. That really is our hope. Uh, but on March 24th, it's a big day. Uh, but March 24th, just naming it, I mean, it, it is important. Uh, but what is most important around here is that we see uh, the, spirit of, uh, the Spirit of Jesus move in us and in our neighborhood. That's what we really want to see. And we think Acts is real instructive for that. So uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, I I pray that we would uh, not just, we would not view this as um, just an inspirational message or we would not view this text as something ancient that has nothing to do with us. Uh, But Lord, I pray uh, that uh, through who you are, your person, the Holy Spirit who is present with us, uh, Lord, that you um, would move in our hearts and change us. Uh, Do it, do this through your word, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Have you ever had uh, the kind of experience that shocked you back into life? Uh, Now, someone in this room told me about uh, apple cider vinegar, and there for a while, I took a swig of apple cider vinegar every morning. And if you want to wake up in the morning, take a swig of apple cider vinegar. Uh, Maybe it's being shocked back into life might be, you you know, standing under a cold, you know, standing under the shower and turn on the cold water. Uh, it might be the time that when you were in the car and uh, you didn't see the wreck coming and all of a sudden you got hit. Um, all these kinds of experiences, they make you, your hair kind of stain on the back of the neck. These kinds of experiences make you realize uh, that when you were in the car, you were rested. When the fire alarm went off in the middle of the night, you realized that you were asleep. Uh, When you took the apple cider vinegar, you didn't know that your taste buds were that sensitive. You didn't know how warm you were until the cold water hit you. You weren't cognitively taking note of these states of rest, of sleep, of warmth, of sensitivity, until some external force plunged you into these realities. This happened to me on 9-11. Uh, Now we're kind of getting to a a day and age where college students uh, weren't even born at 9-11, which shocks me. But uh, I I was in college. Uh, I was a uh, sophomore at UK, and I was living in an old beat-down house across the street from the law school. And I'd gone out to run that morning and went out for a run. I I came home sometime between 8.46 and 9.03. Uh, 8.46 was when the first plane hit the first tower, and 9.03 is when the second plane hit the second tower. And when I got home, my roommate was standing there in the living room watching this, and he said, man, look at that, look at, you see all the smoke coming out of the tower, a plane hit it. And we thought, man, what a terrible accident this must have been. But when we were, as we were watching, this is probably true for many of you who were around in those days, when the second plane hit the second tower, you knew that this wasn't an accident. You knew that it was an act of terrorism. And all of a sudden it plunged you into the reality of the presence of evil in our world. Plunged you into it. Now this is what's going to happen to us when we read this text. We're going to be plunged in the reality of the holiness of God. See, you finished chapter 4, what we did last week, and it seems that everything's really positive. The community is a taste of heaven There's great care, there's great grace, there's great unity, there's great power happening in the church. But we come to realize that not all is well with this utopic community because they're jolted in the reality of the holiness of God in an instant. So let's read our text and get jolted, shall we? Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, <clears throat> sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pause. Uh, remember last week we saw that those uh, who had resources in the community, that they would sell uh, their properties, give them to the apostles, and the apostles would then meet the needs of the poor in their community. That's, that's what happened. It was all elective wasn't like, hey, all right, now that we're Christians, we got to sell everything. That's not what happened. Needs would come up, and we'd find ways to meet those needs, and the way that those needs were met were that those who had resources would give them to those who didn't. Okay? And now Barnabas is put before us as a positive and exemplary example of that community in verses 32 to 35 that we looked at last week. Okay? All right. That's a positive example. Now we're going to get to chapter 5, and we're going to see the negative example. All right. It was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened and Peter said to her tell me whether you sold the land and for so and for so much she said yes for so much but Peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the lord behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. It's a touchy-feely one, isn't it? Uh, Really warms your heart uh, when you read those 11 verses. But they're instructive for us. I think we'll learn a lot from them here today. So you see the negative example. Instead of building up the community, Ananias and Sapphira are tearing the community down. Unlike Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. Barnabas uh, is the one who's selling his things. He literally embodied all of those positive characteristics from the early church. And Neonites and Sapphira, they're not the first threat to the church. If you've been with us for a while, you know that earlier in chapter 4, there's an external threat upon the church. Peter and John have been preaching, uh, and and the Jewish and the Roman authorities, they're taking uh, taking great notice of their preaching because they're, they're gaining a crowd. Things are happening among them. They think that the Jews are going to uh, they're, they're gonna have a coup against them, the ones who are in power. They're threatened by it. And so they put this huge threat on them. They said, hey, you guys can't preach anymore. And Peter and John said, hey, we can't, uh, we can't abide by that one. So there's this external threat from chapter 4. Now there's this internal threat. You know, if, 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 to speak medically, uh, germs are an external threat to you. Cancer is an internal threat to you. And now there's this cancer that's growing inside the community where the body is going to begin to work against itself, and something's got to happen. It's got to be rooted out. This is what we see here. Here are my two points today uh, the deception of man and the holiness of God. Keep it simple since they didn't give me much room to take notes right there in the bulletin, you know. Uh, the deception of man. Again, we saw last week that there's this great care happening within the community. We see Barnabas, uh, who's getting in on the action. Uh, He's the one who's selling his stuff, just like the people did in verses 32 through 35. And Ananias and Sapphira, they see this and they're saying, hey, we're in. We're going to sell our land too. And what you see, if you read these first 11 verses carefully, you'll notice the problem with them was not their greed. The problem with them was their deception. See what and fire, what they did is that they pretended to give all their money to the apostles, but in reality, they kept back a portion for themselves. Why'd they do that? Well, same reason me and you would do it. They were seeking the praise of men. They wanted the reputation of being generous, they wanted to be accepted within the community. See, they were deeply insecure. And so they just bandwagoned into this giving. They just followed the example of others, but their hearts weren't in it. And what they did is they didn't make a miscalculation with their checkbook, but they made a calculated attempt to deceive the church. See, this is spiritual fraud, this is a religious sham. This is pious pretense. This is simulated holiness. This is, to put it simply, this is hypocrisy. Christian hypocrisy. And Sure, this is against the community. They're not meeting the needs of some who need to have their needs met. Sure, it is evil that they're trying to build this reputation that's not really true. What makes this really sad is that they were really lying to God. Do you see verse 3 and verse 5? In verse 3, Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 5, he says that Ananias lies to God. And so what Ananias and his wife Sapphira, what they both did is they lied in order to garner the reputation that they so desired. And it's bad. But their problem is deeper in the fact that they lied to God. There's this vertical component to their sin. See, the Holy Spirit dwelled with them in inside their community and they disregarded his presence. the root of their sin was an attempt to see how much they can get away with without getting in trouble. All right, it gets scarier. Sure, this sin's against the community, sure it's against God. But it's also notice what they're filled with. Peter says that Ananias is filled with Satan. Scary. See, verse 31 of chapter 4 says they're filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way that the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira are filled with Satan. There's a spiritual dimension to their spiritual hypocrisy. See, they're responsible for their deception, but the ultimate cause was Satan who's trying to get into the life of the church to corrupt it and to divide it. You might say, Marsh, this is pretty primitive. I mean, couldn't we have just skipped on to verse 12 and got something a little more relevant? Well, friends, this has really everything to do with us. We're guilty of spiritual hypocrisy just as much as Ananias and Sapphira. Now, you may not have tried to deceive the church when it comes to money, but don't be fooled. Money's not the main issue here. It's deception. And when deception comes in, especially spiritual deception, hypocrisy, it's when we try to appear more holy than we actually are. We share in the same sin when we promote the idea that we're people of prayer. That we're more spiritual than we actually are. We hide our sins so that we try to appear like we have it all together. Usually it sounds innocent. It's almost undetectable when we tell someone we're praying for them when we actually aren't. When we tell other people to do things that we ourselves are unwilling to do. When we present ourselves on social media as being one way spiritually when we actually aren't. Now you might say, well, Marsh, this, this spiritual deception, is just about this is just about me and my relationship with God, right? That's a fair question, but it really, that question really reveals that perhaps you undervalue the reality of community. Think about your life in terms of a tapestry. I got this from Tim Keller in Generous Justice this week reading it for our Mercy Ministry training. And he talks about this tapestry. And a tapestry is a, is a woven cloth. It consists of innumerable threads, and they're all interwoven with one another. And if you throw all all these pieces of threads out on a table, you're not going to have any fabric. But to have a real tapestry, the threads must be rightly and intimately related to one another in literally millions of ways. Each thread has to go under and over and through and around lots of other threads in order to have something that really lasts. And see, what we do in spiritual hypocrisy is that we're refusing to rightly relate to the other threads. We want to stick out. We want to pull ourselves out of the tapestry and isolate ourselves. See, Ani, safar they didn't want their money to be used by others. Ani, Safar wanted to be considered more holy than they actually were. They wanted to stick out. They wanted to be a different kind of thread in this tapestry. And we're no different. So instead of thinking about our reputation and our money as if we were a single thread, you and I need to think first and foremost that we're a part of a tapestry of a community before we think of ourselves as a single thread or as an individual. And it's only then that we will begin to shed our pretense. See, what God wants for you and for me is to live with a clear clear conscience. He wants us to live the clear conscience before him and our fellow man. what the Bible talks about when it talks about living in the light. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about living transparently before God. To use this analogy, it'd be like living your life in a house that has no ceiling and has no walls. That's the kind of life you want to live. There's nothing separating you from God and others because your conscience is clear. And it was this kind of openness which Ananias and Sapphira failed to maintain begs this question, what are you hiding? Do you realize that hiding your sin is what ruins your fellowship with others? Do you realize that hiding your sin is what God finds to be heinous? Hiding your sin is a blatant act of rebellion, and it got Ananias and Sapphira killed which leads me to my second point, the holiness of God. So we've talked about Ananias and Sapphira. We've talked about their deception. Now it's time for us to talk about what did God do in this text and why did he do it? Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you sat down and read all 28 chapters, uh, you'd probably say, gosh, this might be the hardest one. This is the hardest one for us as 21st century Americans to read. It's a real stumbling block. And what we stumble over is the severity of God's judgment. It's offensive to us. Because we begin to say, hey, don't we serve a God of love? How can a loving God strike a man down? How can a loving God strike a man dead without giving him the opportunity to even repent? Did you notice that about Ananias? He didn't even have a chance to repent. Sapphira did, but Ananias didn't. We'd say, isn't that unfair? Because we have a hard time believing that a loving God can be also a judging God. But let me put it to you this way. Aren't all loving persons sometimes filled with wrath? Not just despite of, but because of their love. Now, we had John and Maggie up here earlier with that that plumpy little boy, right? I guarantee you that John and Maggie would get very angry if someone tried to do something to their baby. Does that make them a hateful person? No, it makes them someone who loves their baby. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, you get angry. Becky Pippert, one of my favorite writers, Rebecca. You might find her books better if you put Rebecca in there. Here's what she says. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions of relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. Let me say it again. Far from anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but His subtle opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race, and He loves us with His whole being. Listen to this from Psalm 145. Carefully. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, And loving toward all he has made. He's righteous and loving towards all that he has made. That's what he's saying. Then it says, The Lord watches over those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You see, the real mystery in our text is not that God struck down Ananias without the chance to repent, the great mystery is that he gives Sapphira the chance to repent, but she lies to Peter's face. The great mystery is, if you go back into the gospel, is that God didn't strike down Peter when he denied Jesus three times. The great mystery is that you and I are still standing today, though we deserve the full fury of God's judgment because he is holy. So you see, the teaching of the holiness of God has got a lot for us. It teaches us that we're way too flippant with our sin and what we need to do is that we need great fear to replace our flippancy. That's what happens in verse 5 and 11. Do you see it in verse 5 and 11? This word fear comes up. It happens after the death of Ananias and it happens after the death of Sapphira. And when we hear the word fear, we begin to think about Halloween, don't we? But the, word, the, 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 but the fear of God, what it is, is it's, it's, it's this healthy sense of awe rather than panic or terror. And it's something that Luke, who writes the book of Acts and who wrote the gospel of Luke, is something that he emphasizes over and over again. In chapters 1 and 2, in the birth narrative, talking about the birth of Jesus, the angel of the Lord shows up to Zechariah, who's Jesus' uncle. Then, the, then an angel of the Lord shows up to the shepherds, and you know how they both respond? With great fear. In chapter 5, <clears throat> you've got a crowd who sees Jesus heal a paralytic and then tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. You know how they respond? With great fear. In chapter 7, fear comes upon the crowd when Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. In chapter 8, fear comes upon the disciples when Jesus calms the storm. Again in chapter 8, Jesus casts the demons out of this demon-possessed man, and he casts them into a a bunch of pigs, and the pigs run over the cliff. You know that story? They respond with great fear. I would too. Then in chapter 9, you got Peter, James, and John, they go up with Jesus, and Jesus is on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration, and he, 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 just the, 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 his divinity is just is shown in a way that's not in the rest of the Gospels. And the way they respond is with great fear. So anytime that Jesus shows out in a way that lifts the veil off his humanity so that people would see his divine nature, it causes people to, To turn inward and when they turn inward they see how small they are they see how unholy they are which makes them fear god and when god does this in acts chapter 5 the fear of the lord quotient rises in the church they're not so flippant with their sin anymore What Luke's tried to tell them in Acts is what God's trying to tell us tonight. That there are solemn implications for us because of the holiness of God. Friends, the soul of our church is at stake. Because God's going to continue to be considered to be harsh when it comes to our hypocrisy. The kind of hypocrisy that brought Ananias and Sapphira still happens, and I've seen it a bunch. I know you're thinking, like, Marsh, you've seen people just fall dead because they're sin. No, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how spiritual deception has led to death in the lives of people who were spiritually deceptive. See, if you're Living in hypocrisy, death might not come to you, but it'll come to your children. It'll come to your grandchildren. I've seen parents ruin the faith of their kids because they demanding something of their kids that they did not demand of themselves. If you have spiritual hypocrisy and you're in a place of leadership Christian leadership and those who follow you find out that your faith was false because you demanded something of them that you didn't demand of yourself, death will happen. I've seen pastor after pastor demand something of their parishioners that they did not demand of themselves. The result? Devastation. The result? Death. So, when you look at verses 1 through 11, in chapter 5 of Acts, when you look at it in this way, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira really are a gift to the church. See, the best thing that could happen to you is that something in you dies. That's your hypocrisy. I know it feels like death to bring something that's this long-hidden sin, and you bring it into the light, it feels like death. I know... It's really hard to ask for help. I know it's hard to believe that Jesus and his people will love you if you confess the worst things about you. But the light is where sin goes to die. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says this. It says that, it tells us that God shines light out of the darkness and into our hearts. Not so that we might be exposed and feel ashamed, but he shines his light into our hearts So that sin is revealed, and the moment that we see it, we also see the face of Christ. So the gospel doesn't want to just shame you. It wants to show you, this is how bad you really are, and Jesus loves you. So when you're most exposed is when you're most loved. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, they had the community take a real serious look at themselves. All of a sudden, people started confessing their sins. Scores of people. But you can really only confess your sin when you know that there's someone who loves you unconditionally. When you don't fear their rejection. And that someone is Jesus. Jesus took your sin so seriously that he died for it. But he did it voluntarily and he did it because he loved you. So friends, will you come to him? Will you confess your sin to him? He already knows it. Will you tell others what you're dealing with? Will you admit the ways you've been putting on a front of spirituality that's utterly false? See, brothers and sisters, shame has no power in the light. So let the grace of Jesus Christ overwhelm you tonight. Let us pray. Father, it's a very serious text. But Lord, you, take, you took sin so seriously that you died, and um, we want to see that you did that because you love us. So Lord, would you confirm your love for us as we worship? In Christ's name, Amen.